the uh, North Koreans are at their tricks again, aren't they? I don't know who, where it will end. Um, a lot of us had hopes that King Yong-un would be different from his father and his grandfather, but those hopes have faded somewhat. Actually, at the borders of uh, North Korea, apparently people have known for some time that he was every bit as ruthless as his predecessors. Um, one of the young Kim's first moves was to uh, tighten the porous borders of North Korea, particularly at the border with China, particularly clamping down on smuggling. Smuggling is still going on across that border. All kinds of contraband can find their way into North Korea, and, and some contraband is overlooked a little bit, some smuggling. There are just a couple of things that they're particularly worried about. Uh, One of those is South Korean DVDs, especially um, soap operas, letting North Koreans see their own people, um, people ethnically just the same as them, thriving just the other side of the border, is, uh, one can understand, just too incendiary and... um, the penalties are severe for people uh, smuggling Korean DVDs in. The other high-risk items are Bibles. Now, actually, if you think about it for a minute, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you can understand those authorities not wanting um, people to see what is happening today in the outside world. But the Bible is an ancient book completed nearly 2,000 years ago and it contains no instructions to Christians to revolt. Far from it. Christians are told in the New Testament to submit to every authority. The authorities of North Korea, though, know that it's a revolutionary book. People change when they read the Bible. And in North Korea, at least, they know that. Totalitarian regimes fear, therefore, the Bible. Um, I don't know whether you noticed, but it was revealed um, recently that the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as a young man, um, uh, spent some time smuggling Bibles in an old camper van into Ceausescu's Romania and ris- risking um, uh, uh, his freedom, at least, in doing that. And he was part of a great throng of people in the days of the Soviet Union who were smuggling Bibles into various countries. Still it happens in closed countries because people in those countries devour Bibles. That ancient book has living power. It is feared by despots. Now, here's something more amazing. Amongst evangelical Christians in this country, the majority don't read their Bibles most days. That's just not, not just nominal Christians, that's evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. Um, Perhaps only 35% of evangelicals read their Bibles more or less every day. So you have this weird situation 
of people who are praying for Bible smugglers. Smuggling Bibles into uh, places like North Korea, saying a hearty amen at the end of the prayer, who then go home and don't even bother to open the book themselves. That is an anomaly which we must not reproduce here. Make no mistake, that is not because we in the West have discovered that it is not as powerful as those people in closed regimes think. Actually, the evidence is that regular Bible reading has an enormous influence on life outcomes. I talked about this last summer when we were on, uh, on this uh, subject. The research suggests that sporadic, occasional Bible reading actually only has a very modest influence on the average Christian's life. The real watershed... Um, uh, so the researchers say, uh, is between those who read their Bibles sometimes and those who read their Bibles most days. It doesn't have to be even every day. Most days. Where the reflex is, um, uh, generally, I will pick up my Bible. Those who read their, mo- their Bibles most days have very significantly different life outcomes, life expectations than the sporadic readers. The the divorce rates amongst those people are significantly lower. Reported levels of emotional well-being are significantly higher. The people's reporting of their faith growing and strengthening strengthening them and helping them on a day-to-day basis is much higher People who read their Bibles regularly, that is one of the primary marks of thriving Christians. The North Koreans are right. Bible reading is a revolutionary activity. Before Easter, we were were looking at uh, the book of Ezra. And it records, remember... The, the Israel coming in dribs and drabs, God's people returning to the promised land after they had been exiled in Babylon. And their whole way of life had been destroyed, but in the book of Ezra, we were seeing them slowly, bit by bit, rebuilding themselves as the kingdom of God. And that story continues um, uh, through the same era um, in this book of Nehemiah that we've got open before us. Um, as we were reading the story before, we, we, we were trying to read it as an object lesson in what it takes to revive and restore God's people. Churches stand in constant need of renewal and revival. And we were reading it with that in mind. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Ezra, do you remember? We saw the significance of God's providential ruling hand. It was God who determined when he would restore and renew his people Israel. God moved Cyrus' heart so that the exiles would return. God moved the hearts of the exiles so that they would come and return. God is in control of the restoration of his people. But then we saw in Ezra 3, we saw that when they returned and got there, Got, got back into the promised land, worship was the, was the central thing. They didn't build a temple, they didn't build the city walls, first of all. The first thing they did was on their ground, they just started worshipping God. They knew that was central to their life. 
and everything else should be built around it. Then we saw in chapters 4 to 6 a little glimpse actually through generation after generation. It jumps ahead to give us a little vision, a little glimpse of the long-term hard work that was involved in restoring God's people. It required perseverance. It required patience. It required generation after generation to commit itself to a long obedience in the same direction, to plodding, do you remember? And then in in Ezra chapter 7, we finally met the man who gave the book its name, Ezra. And we began to uh, paint that picture of this leader whom God had raised up and the qualities and the characteristics that he had to be able to lead the people of God. Well, well, this week we're jumping uh, ahead to see that man, Ezra, a few decades uh, after this, before we actually go back into the book of Ezra for next week. But I wanted us to, to um, continue looking at the qualities of this man, Ezra. We find him again in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was his uh, younger contemporary who'd arrived after him. Um, And when Nehemiah arrives, Ezra seems to sort of fall back into the the background. Perhaps we can imagine he's a sort of scholar-teacher type. And the the man of action, Nehemiah, steps forward to get involved in the rebuilding of the uh, of the city walls. And, uh, but Ezra is still there and Ezra is still needed decades later. And his role comes to the fore in Nehemiah 8. Ezra is a teacher of the Bible. Nehemiah can do all the planning and building and organising that he likes. But if there is no teaching of the Bibles, God's people will be in deep trouble. Because the Bible is a revolutionary book. Nehemiah 8 is the story of that book. It is the story of a people. It's the story of a teacher. Of the people. We're going to look at each of those three. And by the end of our time this morning. My prayer and my desire is that you will have a hunger. Shall we say you will have a North Korean hunger. To read this revolutionary book. Firstly then. This chapter. Nehemiah is about a book. Uh, When the seventh month came, chapter 8, verse 1, it's just the end of chapter 7, actually, but the NIV has rightly put it into chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, all the people came together as one. In the square before the water gate, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Here it is, the book of the law of which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Actually, we have something even better. Not just that 
that foundational Old Testament book of the law, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the, the capstone, the completion, the full manifestation of God's great glorious plans for his world and his people. As John puts it in his gospel, the law was given through, through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hear our words in this book of grace and truth. We have all received one, one grace after, instead of another, or after another, says John. One good thing on top of another, and Christians can enjoy the completion of that. Interestingly, these people didn't gather in the temple precincts, but did you notice it? In the square before the water gate. In other words, out there in the hustle, the hustle and bustle amongst people's ordinary lives. Within the hearing of the city gates where the judges would sit and make judgments. Within the hearing of the streets where the book of Proverbs had said, wisdom cries out in the streets. Within the, the, the hearing of the marketplace in the, in the square where people are doing their daily business and need to hear the word of God. There it is, out there amongst the people. And, and the reading of God's book was clearly carefully planned. Chapter 8, verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. They have, in short order, rebuilt the city, uh, city walls and they have made sure in that rebuilding process they, they create a big wooden platform that Ezra can stand on to teach the law. It was an occasion of great solemnity. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. It's, um, that's what you do when you stand in the presence of royalty. In some countries, including increasingly America, I think, churches stand for the reading of Scripture, taking their lead in part from this incident. And that's not a bad thing for God's people to do. In the early church, actually, congregations used to stand also for the sermon while the preacher sat and uh, preached his uh, sermon. I sometimes wonder whether we should introduce that, perhaps in Trinity Church, um, when we go there. What, what, what we're seeing in the life of Israel, you see, uh, is something very important. Before this moment in Israel's life, all the pomp and ceremony had focused on the temple, on ritual, on sacrifice, on the idea of, of holy ground, meeting God on holy ground. But, but almost this moment seems to be a little watershed in Israel's life. Now, though they are rebuilding the temple, and that is important, now the, shift, the focus seems to be shifting away from a holy place towards a book. A book that can be read anywhere. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Nehemiah writes this. What is strikingly apparent is the royal reception given to the word of God. 
This day was to prove a turning point. From now on, the Jews would be predominantly the people of a book. At the dedication of Solomon's temple, there had been great glory and beauty, natural and supernatural, to overwhelm the worshippers. But here, the focus, apart from a wooden platform, was a scroll. Or more exactly, what was written on it. You see how we've said before in this period, they're on the way to becoming a church which could gather anywhere, even in a school. The more public, the better. And it's focused around singing, worship, praying, all of those things, but also a book. We honour that book here. It is absolutely uh, central to our life as a church and I know the elders are absolutely committed to seeing this book, the Bible, honoured long after I have left. But let me ask you a question. Do you honour it in your life? The commonest excuse for not regularly reading the Bible is lack of time, I'm told. But don't deceive yourself. How much time do you spend on Facebook? How much time do you spend watching television? How much time do you spend frittering on one thing or another? Our mark of God's people is they're hungry to read this book. Which brings us on to the next thing we need to see. This is a chapter not only about a book, but it's about a people. Did you notice in verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square. Notice as well in that chapter, in that verse, they told Ezra to bring out the book. Bible teachers commonly have to spend uh, uh, quite a lot of their time justifying the need to have the Bible taught, as I am, uh, uh, frankly, today. But not so with Ezra. Come and teach us, say say the people. We've had enough of boring television programs, endlessly surfing the web, uh, or or being uh, or or inspirational um, soundbite sermons that stir us for a moment and don't lead us any, leave us anything to chew on. Come and teach us, Ezra. We want something more. Come and teach us the Bible. We're hungry for it. And it is all the people. That is made plain again and again and again in this chapter. The word all occurs ten times in this chapter. Um, uh, always referring to all the people. Um, but let me just um, run through the first seven times, which are perhaps the most significant. Verse 1, all the people came together. We've already seen it. Verse 2, all who were able to understand were there. Verse 3, all the people listened. Verse 5, all the people could see him. Verse 5 again, he was standing above all the people. Verse 5 again, all the people stood up. Verse 6, all the people lifted their hearts. We cannot miss it. It was all the people. It was a mass desire of all the people of God to hear the word of God. 
And notice particularly there's an emphasis here on understanding. Verse 2, the, the assembly, did you notice, was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. Or verse 3, the Bible was read in the presence of men and women and others who could understand. And as we'll see in a minute, in verse 8, they made sure that the people understood. Then it finishes with verse 12, this, this little section. All the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Understanding, understanding, understanding comes out again and again and again. You know, some people say the Bible is sexist. And there is no doubt that it teaches that men and women are different and have different roles, but it is absolutely clear here and a thousand other places that women are equally invited to and warmly are called to understand the word of God and respond to it in an age when only males were being educated. The Bible was radically different. Not only men and women. Notice as well anyone. Anyone who could understand. Surely that includes children. Surely they're primarily in mind here. Let the dawning of their understanding be uh, correlated with the dawning of understanding of the word of God, says the Bible. You know, junior, junior church, the children who just left us, that's not a glorified child-minding service that is a sacred and precious duty and privilege of God's people to be teaching all who are able to understand. Are you one of those all? In particular, are you one of the, 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 those all who clamours for, longs for, stands up for the Bible? Are you enthusiastic to understand? Not only is Bible reading uh, declining in our country, but actually the reading of Christian books is too. You might be um, um, deceived because there are an enormous number of Christian books that are around these days compared to even when I was a young man. But that is because there's a tiny minority of Christians who are voracious readers and of course they won't read the same book twice so they keep plugging out more and more books on tiny little short print runs to satisfy that need whilst the vast majority of God's people hardly read a Christian book. I won't ask you to put up your hands, but how many of you have read a Christian book in the last month? And it's not an excuse, you see, to say, I am not an academic. It didn't say all those who were university graduates. It simply said all those who could understand. And that includes the vast majority of people and surely it includes everyone here. A generation ago, the uh, cultural critic um, 
Neil Postman wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in which he suggested that our, our soundbite culture of television was, was disabling our ability to think properly. Since that day, the internet has continued that, and no one disputes that these days. We've replaced serious thoughts with a million snippets of information. But in the process, apart from a small cultural elite, who, who frankly are significantly overrepresented here, but that's um, uh, beside the point, apart from a small cultural elite, by and large, we've lost the ability to think. You know, in my father's generation, it wasn't that long ago, in my father's generation, it was not uncommon to meet working-class men who had read Karl Marx. And today, frankly, the deepest cultural analysis that many ordinary people engage with, they get from pink. And God's, culture, God's church has to be countercultural in that. We must be unabashed, not, not, at, not at being intellectually elite, but simply saying, all people have got minds. We must not leave careful thought to, to a tiny elite and palm off the rest of the body of Christ with mind-numbing gruel or of anodyne worship and superficial pep talks. God's people need the Bible taught carefully, systematically, programmatically. Everyone who could understand gathered to hear the word of God. A book, a people, a teacher. There he was in verse 1, Ezra the teacher of the law. Not, notice, sharing his own thoughts, his own wisdom, but the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And notice... Um, uh, this, in verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak until noon. There's a sermon for you. Actually, over the years, I have noticed that, that, that every church that I know, no matter how long or short the sermons usually are, has a significant proportion of people who complain that the sermon's too long. I know churches where there are complaints if the sermon goes beyond five minutes. And I think there's a simple reason for that. People feel instinctively they could get the same value that the sermon gave if it was just delivered in a shorter period. And up to a point, I think, because preachers are all imperfect, that's probably true. But it is an illusion to think that we can grow without the effort required in serious engagement in Scripture. The effort to concentrate is part of the process. People learn to think Christianly 
by being stretched, not least on a Sunday, but I hope in other situations too. Of course, we shouldn't take advantage of that. We, we should, we should um, uh, preachers should make every effort to, to um, say what they need to say in, the, in, 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 in as succinct and a compact a way as possible. And I'm as guilty as the next man, the next preacher of failing in that sometimes. But there is an interesting statistic, you know. Um, one of the most common characteristics of rapidly growing churches is that they have unusually long sermons. Note as well, Ezra is not alone. Verse 4, he stands on the platform with those 13 others that Bonolo's named and I'm not going to. Um, presumably, uh, standing on the plot platform they share the job of reading the word of God aloud from dawn until noon. Then in verse 7, there's another 13 who are down amongst the people helping them to understand. Do you see that? Assistance in public um, proclamation of scripture, assistance in in, uh, uh, um, helping people at the ground level understand. It is teamwork. It is not one man at all. And the net result is very interesting. They read from the book of the law, this is verse 8, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. It's, it's possible that um, making it clear means translating it here since the law was written in Hebrew and by then the common language was a related language of Aramaic. But it doesn't seem likely in any way that what they're attempting to do is the key thing that we need to understand. The key thing is they wanted to make sure people hadn't just heard the word of God. They had understood and absorbed it into themselves. Tim Chester, the um, author, leader of the Crowded House movement, he likes to say provocatively, he, said, I'm, he says, I'm not interested in Bible teaching churches. I'm interested in Bible learning churches. It's possible for people like me to spout at the front for all our worth and for it not to be going in. And the key thing is that it goes in. We share the responsibility here of preaching and we train up preachers because it is, a, it is a great responsibility not just to have a few but many who can teach the Bible. Our nation needs that as we've said so many times. I hope that that will continue in Magdalen Road for many years to come. We're committed as well to, to home groups because home groups here help people to take the truths that they've heard and perhaps absorbed to a certain extent and really rooted and earthed in their daily life. And home group leaders and Bible study leaders are vitally important, like those Levites on the ground, for just helping people to reflect on the Bible truths so that we're not just a Bible teaching church, we're a Bible learning church. A book, a people 
a teacher. Uh, many teachers, indeed. There is a result. A surprising one, perhaps. First of all, in verse 9, all the people, we're told, had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord because of the law. That because the Bible is a surgical instrument. It cuts, it exposes, it penetrates. It can be painful experience to read the, read the Bible. I think that's one of the reasons why many people give up reading it. They don't want the pain. None of us does. But neither does anyone want the, the pain associated with going into an operating theatre. We're not quite sure what would happen, but we know that there will be pain involved. We're not quite sure how much of ourselves we'll come through the process with. But people with a serious condition know they must go. And they know that ultimately the result will be better. So it is with God's word. God's word, though it brings some pain sometimes, an exposure of ourselves, brings life and health. It is good news because although it tells us that no one is righteous before God, it also tells us that Christ died on the cross for all of our sins to put us right with God. Although it tells us we are much more sinful than we thought, it also tells us that we're much more loved than we ever thought. Although it tells us that that we must face terrifying judgment of God after death, it also tells us that as we trust in Christ who bore our sins, He will accept us and forgive us and whisper into our ear, well done, good and faithful servant, and bring us into his new creation to live with no mourning or crying or even death forever and ever. It is painful news, but it is overwhelmingly, massively good news. So we go to the operating theatre of reading God's Word. That is the result that I long to see amongst us. Go and enjoy, verse 10, choice food and sweet drinks and send send some to, to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. That is why North Korean leaders fear the Bible. Because it gives a joy which makes them unstoppably strong. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because it liberates from from vain pleasures and trivial threats of this world and enables them to stand with their head high whatever the world throws against them because it makes them indomitable. And that is why I want you to have a lifelong, insatiable, daily hunger for the word of God. This is a book like no other. It cuts, but it heals. 
it is a revolutionary influence in lives. I, I really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, want you to be happy. And the best way that I can do that is to teach you the Word of God and raise up teachers of the Word of God and call all people to read it and understand it and respond to it.